0: Welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Richard, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with a full crew today. We've got in the studio our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hello. Our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And on the phone, we have our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And also in studio, we've got BBC Culture's deputy editor, Christian Blauvelt. Hey there! So, Christian, we brought you on to talk about the uh, massive list that you guys have just released of the hundred greatest film comedies of all time. So, we'll dive into that in a bit. Wait, I thought we, we were going to st- spend
1: the whole episode talking about Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to go. <laughs> <laughs> Seventy-nine minutes. get that zombie polar episode. bear out of the studio, <laughs> please. That.
0: Yeah, this episode will also be 79 minutes long so that we can talk about movies and Game of Thrones. Uh, And we also this week have a conversation with uh, Ann Dowd, who is an Emmy nominee for The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, But before we get into any of that, there's just kind of like some bits and pieces of Oscar-adjacent news. Uh, We wanted to start it with what I don't think is going to be an Oscar movie, but is kind of the movie, the prestige-y movie that no one can stop talking about this week. The Strange Saga of Tulip Fever continues to unfold as this movie that, as far as I know, was filmed in 2014 and has been kicked around by the Weinstein Company ever since. Uh, Richard, you had a close encounter with Tulip Fever that I'm told is a real movie, but I've seen yet to see any evidence. What happened with you and Tulip Fever?
2: Yeah, my second year at Cannes, so 2015, the last time the Weinstein Company had a, a special pre- presentation at Cannes, which they think they used to do every year, they showed a trailer for Tulip Fever and Alicia Vikander was, you know, kind of carted out and waved to the audience and, you know, Harvey's kind of was talking a big game about it and i was excited i mean, script by tom stoppard it looked gorgeous i was curious like what the hell zach galifianakis was doing in it um at that time you know dane DeHaan was sort of this the ascendant young you know heir to the dicaprio throne or whatever uh and then it just never happened and one one friend joe reed i think it's safe to say saw it in one of these kind of early test screenings maybe a year and a half ago and then it kind of went radio silent for a while and then just popped back up in the news
0: and then you were supposed to see it like a week or two ago, and then at the last minute the screening got canceled? That's
2: exactly right. Yeah. So I, I was all ready to go, and then the night before, I got an email saying that the screening was canceled, um, and then I said, oh, okay, well, you know, it's not out for a couple weeks, so just let me know when the next screening is, and they wrote back a couple days later, um, there are no more screenings.
3: <laughs> well,
4: I have one. <laughs> I, I until, re- until just I now. I can
1: break some news here. Yeah. Because on Tuesday of next week, Peggy Siegel is hosting a uh, screening of it. Friend of the podcast, Peggy Siegel. Yes, co-hosting with Tina Brown, Ariana Huffington, Roberta Myers, and Martha Stewart. So... Quite an illustrious. Is group. that a
2: Hamptons event or a Manhattan? No, event? that
1: is a uh, Dolby Eight. Anyway, I don't want to say. Oh, okay, um, about I know people <laughs> show up uh, <laughs> like Kyle Buchanan going to fly those in
2: those Tulip Fever diehards. <laughs> <Yeah. 'cause.
3: laughs> <Yeah, exactly. laughs> oh, the tulip heads. Anyway, it's in
1: Manhattan, in New York City. So mm-hmm. uh, we shall see. I'm RSVPing. I hope that I they absolutely. You think do you should? It. I mean, that's I hope they actually have it.
2: I mean, that's the funny thing about this, like this kind of the canceling of screenings and, and all this stuff, and um, and there was a whole thing where um, I think Fox deemed that the the. the TV trailer, the TV ad too racy. And so so there is this kind of weird kind of like phenomenon now surrounding this movie that looked to be kind of DOA, but, but may, I don't know.
1: I mean, the thing you got to love about Harvey is like he's in the game, 120%, yeah. right? And so like, because this movie was always going to be his prestige movie, like, didn't he make a bunch of other chess moves to be like, you know in order for Tulip Fever to really work, I need Dane DeHaan to do this movie and Alicia Uh Vikander to do this movie and those were all supposed to be precursors and they've all come out and come and gone long ago (laughs) and Tulip Fever, we don't know what, what the story is. Yeah, it's a, re-
2: it's yeah, a real th- mystery. I think
0: the best rundown of this whole saga that Kyle Buchanan wrote at Vulture and he talked about, you know, all of the ways that they, you know, shoehorn Alicia Vikander in there when she was kind of caught off the Danish girl. And then uh, the sense that the Weinstein Company has had some layoffs and maybe some financial issues and they kind of keep pushing it back. And they had new movies like this Michelle Williams star Sweet Francaise that they sent to Lifetime. So there's kind of a lot of different moving pieces that have contributed to Tulip Fever being uh, shoved around. And my guess is when it comes out, is this going to be a kind of boring period piece it doesn't seem to be anything special to get such crazy treatment
3: i hope that it is such like no bless everyone involved and i hope everything is fine but what if it becomes this like cult classic of like a terrible like the room but with (laughs) costumes you know what i mean and that's why they sat on it for so long
1: (laughs) I hope it ends up on the next uh, 100 Greatest Comedies list. <laughs>
3: exactly.
2: When we do the revise, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, I think it really is about selling flowers. So it does. Not, it already doesn't sound that really? thrilling, but yeah. it was a hit book, is the thing. So, because yeah. it got. Yeah. I mean, I think Kyle Buchan detailed this in his piece. Like, it was option, like. T- 17 years ago i think before it was even published it was like based on this this heat um so it's been around forever so it
1: and is the, it about the bubble in tulips like yeah, tulips right, became yeah, massively right, that, expensive yeah, and then yeah, didn't yeah. yeah okay
2: but the thing about the, the weinstein movie is that he either bungles the release or or for whatever reason shelves it you know because of some petty thing or you know um as we saw with the immigrant the james gray movie is that like a lot of times they're not bad it's that it's not so easy to kind of just categorize them as these like terrible duds that didn't work. It's sometimes they're fine movies, and just for whatever sort of internal logic within the company or within Harvey, uh, it just didn't happen. So I'm I, I'm i my my bet, and speaking to one person I know who's seen it, is that it it's a fine movie but it just didn't satisfy maybe the the sort of awards hopes that the Weinstein company had, had for it.
5: Harvey has great instincts. I mean, I, I have to say over the years, I mean, even going back to the 80s, going back to Cinema Paradiso, like his mandated cut of that film is better than Tornatore's director's cut. Really? really? Wow. Uh, and, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens with this. I mean, it is like an interesting snapshot of a moment, though. I mean, that this when this film was made, like Jack O'Connell was just in 71. Uh, I mean, like, Carol Delevingne had like really not been in anything at this point since she's been in suicide squad right. and Valerian yeah. I'm actually a supporter of hers I think that she is is an interesting presence on mm-hmm, screen mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. although uh not too many agree with that but um but you guys seem to so I'm
2: yeah yeah I, th- I think she I, th- I think she was pretty interesting in Valerian certainly
1: that's a good point when, yeah. one of the fun things about weinstein always is that Harvey's like one of the last just gut players you know sure and most of the other uh you know people in this field now are have corporate overlords can't just sort of say like I decided to cancel the screening at the last possible minute because I decided I don't want reviews out before this thing comes out I think it'll do five percent better if I you know just open it like he can do all that stuff he's just it's just him so it looks chaotic but he's kind of like following that that golden gut and it's you know it's always interesting to observe well speaking of
2: I mean he's just made another gut choice that we were going to talk about which is that he moved Mary Magdalene uh, from a sweet kind of oscary slot in this fall into next uh spring for easter weekend um and this is garth davis's follow-up to lion which did very well for weinstein last year or yep. was it last year yeah um you know it it oscar nominations big box office um so i don't know is, 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 what can we glean from that i'm curious
5: mm. hmm yeah, it's interesting. You know, one of its producers is is uh, Ian Canning, who last year he produced Lion. Um, he actually, you know, he collected a Best Picture statuette for The King's Speech uh, back in two thousand ten, and or for two thousand ten. And so, I mean, you know, th- there's an impressive pedigree here, no doubt. But uh, I don't know. I mean, the fact that it's being pushed into next year, it it just it seems like it's the kiss of death.
2: It. It does, except you look at something like Passion of the Christ, which was re- released in the uh, spring, I believe, and that, that was a huge hit. Maybe, maybe the thinking that the movie is going to be more on that vein than enough, an and maybe this this season is too crowded. I'm, I'm sure that someone like Harvey Weinstein has seen a lot more of these fall Oscar movies than, than you know the lay, a layperson has. So
1: yeah, well, I think it, oh, there's always that conversation inside of a whatever you want to call it studio to when when a film actually comes in. Sometimes you know you got the script that looked like an awards movie, you got the cast that looked like an awards movie, and then the way it, you know, the way it's just comes out. You might have to be like, all right, this you know, this year with this batch of films, like we're not going to win any awards, so let's move it to a different time when it has a, a better chance of standing out. You know, maybe it's yeah. kind of like let's make it yeah. be the one good movie in April rather than you know drowned out by a bunch of other stuff when it's not really going to win Oscars.
5: And yeah, it could be a box office play. I mean, it just it, it, in if it's coming out in, in in March, you know, the lead up to Easter. I mean, so many faith based films come out at that time. Yes, and yeah. you know, you've got uh, churches renting out. Theaters. I mean, if they're positioning it for that, they could make a lot of money, no mm-hmm. doubt.
3: Yeah, the only thing I can think of is, I was thinking about Hacksaw Ridge, which came out in November and, and was an award season contender, but also I think was trying... To capture that faith-based audience, and it did well, sort of internationally, but domestically, I think it underperformed the way they wanted that film to. So I don't, know, I don't know if that's if there's a lesson there, for the Weinstein's to have learned. But yeah, exa- that's exactly what I was thinking. I was thinking of the churches who rent out entire theaters and bust their congregations over, and and that sort of thing. So.
2: Who knows? I guess we also don't know what the take on Mary Magdalene is. And she's being played by Rooney Mara and Jesus is being played wa- wa- by Joaquin Phoenix. So these are not like your sort of pious kind of characters. I mean, these right. are like artsy weirdo actors. I don't really remember my Bible that well. It's been a long time since I read it at my Catholic college, but... Mary Magdalene is something of a controversial figure I believe. So I don't know if it will have quite the, you know, heaven is for real kind of like Christian draw or the shack kind of audience uh as as, <laughs> you know, as something a little bit more sort of pious would. But
5: and I think you're forgetting God's not dead too. Oh, that's right. Yeah,
2: I always Ooh. forget I always forget movies I did a punch up God's on the script for. God's still not dead. Yeah. <laughs> I hear
1: Joaquin does Jesus with a Trump uh accent okay. actually. Yeah, so it's going to be great. So we're here with Christian Blavelt of BBC Culture, the incredible powerhouse editor of BBC Culture, who has turned this into uh, an amazing must-read, must-view site. But also, once a year in the summertime, in the doldrums of summer, lights up Twitter and the internet with a big list featuring opinions by a bunch of critics about what the greatest movie with you know X variable is. So the first year, two years ago, it was best American movie. That's right. And uh, Citizen Kane won that, Citizen which Kane not a huge that. shocker. Not at all. Then last year, best movie of the 21st century, Mulholland Drive won that. I think sure that did. took a lot of people by surprise.
5: I think so. I think so. But I love the the piece that, that you guys published in, in Vanity Fair about it uh, earlier this year. I mean, for the, the, the 15th anniversary. I mean, it's a film that, you know, especially with all the... Interest in Twin Peaks: The Return right now. Yeah. I think a lot of people are going back to and seeing. Wow, this actually sets the stage for so much of the pop culture that we love now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, I think that's held up well. But at the time, people were like, "What?" I and think that was, was a, a very of...
2: critical pick. You know, I think yes. that like um, it didn't quite align with the masses' understanding. It whereas Citizen Kane, everyone's like, "Yeah, that's you know, that's a that's yeah. a movie." Yeah. Um, but Mulholland Drive was maybe more sort of the the esque kind of yeah. You know, and choice.
1: so and now yesterday because uh, we're talking on Wednesday, yesterday, uh, a new list, the greatest comedies, 100 greatest comedies of all time. And number one, do we want to talk about number one? Or do you want yes. to? Yes.
5: All right. Absolutely. Number one was Some Like It Hot. You know, a film that is beloved by critics, but also I think has a lot of popular appeal. I think it's it's an extremely accessible film, and, and a really interesting movie, because I think it's a film that Looks back and looks forward at the same time. It's a movie that's very much about old Hollywood. I mean, well, for one, it's set in the 20s and it actually is, you know, if you want to be literal about it, it's a gangster movie in many ways, but it has this incredible script, you know, this like perfect three-act structure, just sparkling dialogue, incredible star power in Marilyn Monroe. So it's kind of the apex of a certain style of old Hollywood filmmaking. And at the same time, it looks forward because it's so progressive in identifying the fluidity of gender, gender roles, gender identity, really looking at the horrible ways that men can go about pursuing women. And the two characters, you know, Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis play, really find that they actually become better men by being women, which I mm-hmm. think is a, a really interesting statement. And and it's also actually a very progressive, forward-looking view of homosexuality and even kind of an endorsement of gay marriage at the end, which is amazing for 1959 when the film was made.
1: It's been a while since I've watched it, but the cross stuff is not you're not like puking from problematicness when you watch it now or how much are you it's funny
5: because when i was younger i did actually like i was Mm. not i mean you'll notice i did not have some like it hot on my list i only went back and watched it again recently like just when i knew that it was going to be number one and just
1: being nice about it now because no
5: no no no? i'm (laughs) I'm (laughs) serious no i'm seriously not because i I was never a huge fan. Actually, I'm I'm also just a critic of the director, Billy Wilder, in general. I actually, I'm not a huge fan. I think that, you know, I mean, I like Sunset Boulevard. I'd say that that's his best film. But I find his movies to be overly cynical and a little tawdry. And... I feel like a lot of times they just go for the easiest jokes, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I'm not. I mean I'm not the only one to say this. Like Andrew Saris for a long time really hated Billy Wilder too, but then eventually he came around and like added him to his pantheon of great American directors and everything. So may- maybe I'm kind of on that path now because seeing some like hot again, I was really impressed by it because I think when I was younger I did think it actually it was a homophobic film i think i thought that it actually uh really was insensitive in the way that it went about um dealing with um cross-dressing and um but now seeing it I, i i take a more a more charitable view of it what changed i think it was just you know i think when when i was younger i i just was like really i had the knives out a lot more just i was really looking to dissect a film just based on your
1: mind you'll be like everything's fine (laughs) (laughs) yeah
5: everyone
2: calm down okay (laughs) a question i had so with some like it hot number one uh in the top 10 the most recent film was 1993's groundhog day right that's right so something i wrote a little bit about when i was reacting to to the list when it went up was this kind of difference, but the semantic difference between, like, what what does greatest really mean? Are we talking made me laugh the most, or the most formally, you know, like you are talking about the sparkling screenplay of something like it Hot, uh, you know? And I think that looking at the list, the individual list and the master one, it does seem like there was kind of a divide. You know, my you know my number one was Waiting for Guffman, a silly movie that you know might not be as uh, technically marvelous as something like Get something like Hot. So, what what do you what did you find? Why do you think that the most recent movie in that top ten was 24 years ago.
5: Yeah, it's, it's interesting about it. I think, I think Groundhog Day is such a unique movie because it deals with all of these profound themes and ideas. I mean, it's been embraced by Buddhists as kind of an articulation of, of their worldview, their philosophy, their, their beliefs. The idea that you progress in fits and starts. Uh, with a lot of trial and error ultimately toward enlightenment that it, it is kind of like a slouching toward Bethlehem journey. And um I think that the fact that it does have this kind of this philosophical undercurrent to it, and then just happens to be really, really, really funny with some of the best bits ever. I think it just, it, it's, it's a film that, that resonates so much. It was my actual number one. Yeah. It was my personal number one on my own top 10. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting and it's interesting to see the way that, you know, obviously there's been the Broadway play now and there was such a hullabaloo over Bill Murray attending it at, like two nights in a row a couple weeks ago. And of course, the show's closing now. But um, but it's it's a it's a film that I think just is so much a part of th- our cultural consciousness at this point. You know, I think what is interesting about this list is that there are 15 movies made since 2000 on it. I mean, mm-hmm. the most recent is Tony Erdman from from 2016 you know, just last year. Um, did but, er, David Ehrlich get like 20 votes in this thing? <laughs> well? David Ehrlich voted for forgetting Sarah Marshall oh, okay. at number right. one. He, oh. That was really his attempt to sort of like, I think rig the list. Like he he, yeah. he wanted to see if just like putting it at number one would like, get it into the top 100 somehow. It did not. Okay. Uh, but But there are 15 other films made since 2000 that made the list. And, uh, and it's interesting, the highest ranked one made since 2000 was Anchorman, a number 33, yeah. um, made in 2004. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing. I think with comedy, maybe, maybe critics are a little bit more charitable when it comes to recent films. Like, it's not as much a matter of time sanctifying a classic, it is just more what makes you laugh, you know, and, yeah. and that memory of that, Laughter just really sticks with you. It's like, oh, well, I have to put that film on my Well, list. And you
1: instruct people in the in the instructions. You're like, don't get all heady here. Like, yeah. Put the films yeah. you actually like.
5: Yeah, exactly. I, I really want the critics to choose films that they actually like, that are actually part mm-hmm. of their lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, just on my own top 10, you know, the, the films that I, I personally choose. I mean, these are movies that I typically watch like once a year. Which I know may disturb some people, since I had Six Days, Seven Nights on my top ten. Uh, <laughs> the Harrison Ford, ain't Anne Haitian Yes, that is that, is, that wow. is on my top ten. Wow, um, wow.
0: Surprising. Were you disappointed that it didn't make the list? I can't believe uh, I no one else joined you.
5: I know. Surprisingly, nobody else voted. You're, for
2: that. you're a longtime swimmer, devotee I know that. Oh, completely, yeah. completely.
5: Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's all about it's all yeah. about the swim.
0: Christian, I really like the accompanying articles that you guys wrote to go with this, which is, I mean, you have the uh, people writing up the top 25 featuring Mike Hogan talking about Big Lebowski, which everyone should read. Uh, but I like that you uh, kind of answered the question I had reading it, which is, what, do men and women find different films funny? Because I think in the top 10, uh, I had some like It Hot and Doctor Strangelove both on my list. So, and they are in the top five. So I'm not saying that like all women disagree with it, but there are, it does feel like there's a lot of boy movies that are really high ranking. Like I think of Airplane and a lot of Monty Python movies that way. Uh, whereas you have, I think, two two movies directed by women, one of them being Clueless, which I think you guys said like more women voted for that than others. Did you, I mean, just beyond the top five, did you find a lot of difference? I mean, you managed to get an almost even number of male and female critics, which is no small feat given the gender disparity in the profession. So yeah, how did that shake out when you're looking at all of the polls? You
5: know, it's really interesting. I mean, that ultimately there was very little difference in the way that uh, men and women voted in this. Um, Actually, what's fascinating because I know you just mentioned Monty Python, but more women voted for Life of Brian than men, which mm. I think is is really fascinating. Um I was
1: surprised Life of Brian was, was higher than um Holy, Holy Grail. Grail. Yeah. Me yeah. too. Yeah. That yeah. It, it came in. Ca- at I can blame women six. for that.
0: I blame women. <laughs> yeah, <thank laughs> you. You can, I you. voted for Holy Grail, Mike. Don't blame me. <laughs>
5: <laughs> but yeah, Clueless was a film that was um received only uh female votes, which I think is really interesting. Wow. Animal House wow. received only votes from men. Well i I voted for Clueless. Oh, you voted for Clueless? Yeah, yeah I did. Oh, so, yeah, see, so I'm I, the one. I'm the you were you were, the, you yeah. were like the, yeah. the one man who voted for Clueless. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. All right, yeah, all right. Well, that's that's I that's
2: I, good. I I struggled to not put it. I mean, I almost put it higher. So yeah.
5: I mean, Clueless is a gr- that's a great movie. Yeah, by any standard, so great. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. so I mean. And so, and and
1: I notice as you talk about these, yeah. you look for not just like, oh, it made me laugh, but there's something s- intelligent about the way it's structured. And obviously yeah. being based yeah. on Jane Austen immediately of kind of elevates Clueless. It's not just like a dopey comedy. Right. Like this yeah. is a yeah. rethinking yeah. of a f- famous Victorian novel, you know. Yeah. Definitely.
5: And yet talk about setting the stage for current pop culture as well i mean you've got an early performance from paul redd who's amazing yes and then, yeah that's yeah. true and um
2: yeah, yeah and i think i think also you know just generationally speaking People for whom you know were in their teens when that movie came out, and and you know some, I th- I think a lot of movies in the '90s were now sort of of the age where we, we have jobs that are, allow us to pr- pr- participate in polls like this, you know. So so I think it's interesting seeing that generational divide, and maybe the the n- the newer comedies, the post two thousand something comedies, the people for whom those are classics aren't yet. Yeah. of voting age or whatever also, I don't
1: know. It, takes, it takes time doesn't it I mean I think so I, I think
2: with comedy in particular it takes time to kind of to decide that something wasn't just a, like Austin Powers was the funniest movie I'd ever seen when I was however right. old now eh, not I so mean, much
1: my, my number one I did not like when I saw it in the theater uh, The Big Lebowski which I wrote about yeah mm-hmm. you know I mean I saw it when it came out and I was just like what the hell is this like I, I literally had that experience which I referenced in the thing of being like you're, you're, you wanted Fargo too like it was the Cone Brothers yeah give me Fargo and I'm like, what is this weird... You know, I was also, you know, maybe... Anyway, a lot of people felt that way. And now <laughs> it was like, I will watch it... It was a cult hit in uh, dorm rooms. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just... And it's like, anytime I'm on a plane, you know, it's just like, let's put it on. This will... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and I think that that I mean I love that National Lampoon's Vacation was was high up there for the same reason. It's like that movie I did watch hundreds of times as a kid, and it's just you know. But but some yeah. of these are just like they are embedded in our yeah. psyche. I, I in our completely. Lives.
2: I would sneak a Christmas in front of that vacation. <laughs> that that was my, my <laughs> so, Christmas vacation was my was my um my, my lampoon choice. So talking about all these kind of like, you know classics versus newer things was there anything that really surprised you the most um uh, uh, of the list in general
5: or a particular choice or well i think the thing that's really interesting about some like and hot is that if we had just taken the u.s and canadian critics Dr. Strangelove would have been number oh, one. Yeah. Um, that it was actually, Some Like It Hot was so popular with critics from Latin America and Europe. I mean, it was actually like 65% of all the critics from Western Europe and 60% from Europe as a whole voted for Some Like It Hot. Wow. Uh, which did, did, was amazing. Were you
1: surprised? Did you think Some Like It Hot was gonna win or Dr. Strangelove was gonna win? Did you have a, a, a guess?
5: I, ha- I had a feeling Some Like It Hot would do well. I thought it might be Dr. Strangelove that was actually yeah. going to win, but it it when the, the ballots started coming in, it was very clear that some like it hot. I mean, it was it, it, 98 critics out of the 253 voted for it.
1: And how do you do the voting? Is it preferential? Like, does does a number one spot get 10 points or something? That's exactly right. So okay. it
5: is a ranked list. So your number one choice gets 10 points, number two, nine, and so on down to number 10, which gets one. So it's like the
2: Oscars in a way, I think. I mean, the Oscar running is explained to me every year. Yeah, exactly. I have to be <laughs> somehow,
5: somehow I think the Oscars are even more complicated. I, I think yes, you're
2: right. Yes, they
1: are. Now, <laughs> yeah. now uh, speaking of the Oscars, Some Like It Hot won one Oscar, right? But for uh, costume, I for think.
5: For costume design, yeah, yes. And
1: then got nominated for a bunch. What are the other Oscar winners? Uh, do you know? Do, can can yeah, you you know, uh, recall?
5: Uh, it Happened One Night is mm-hmm. on the list. This is a case where... I mean, part of the reason why we we did this poll is because comedy is routinely overlooked by critics. Last year in the 100 Greatest Films of the 21st Century poll, there were hardly any comedies. I mean, maybe just a few Wes Anderson movies, maybe the Pixar films that were on there, if you count those.
0: Uh, Christian, I'm just going to read straight from the list. At the very top, you said of the 89 winners for Best Picture, only seven can really be called comedies. And I think three of them are on this list. It happened one night, Annie Hall and uh, The Apartment. And then uh, also, You Can't Take It With You, Around the World in 80 Days, Tom Jones and uh, Birdman, which I can't believe Birdman didn't make the list. It's hilarious.
5: (laughs) (laughs) The Laugh Riot
2: Birdman. I know.
5: (laughs) (laughs) know. Um, Yeah. We'll have a separate discussion about Birdman. But uh, (laughs) yeah, I know. It's interesting. I mean, I think you can take it with you. You Got a few votes. I mean, you could argue. Yeah. I mean, Tom. I mean, Tom Jones won Best Picture in 1963. I mean it's a comedy. But that received no votes. Um. Here, it's it, yeah, comedy it's a hard thing. I Why mean, did you
2: choose comedy for for like the third in this series? Was it because you think that's overlooked, or I, yes? yeah,
5: really just because it was so underrepresented yeah. in the 100 greatest films of the 21st century list, and and then I think it's interesting to factor in the the global aspect of it. You know yeah. what? How does comedy play in different parts of the world? You know, you take a film like Airplane, and That's a very dialogue-driven film, ultimately. I mean, a line, you know, that little bit of dialogue, uh, surely you can't be serious. And then Leslie Nielsen says, I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. That doesn't translate. That has to be in English. That's, yeah. You know, that does not survive translation. So, I, I
1: liked what you said about With Nail and I, which I had never even heard of until I spent some time in Ireland and I was staying with a friend in London. And he was like, you've never seen With now and I? Like, we had, let's stop everything. Let's watch it right now. And it's such a cult movie there. Yeah. But I think still many Americans don't – would never even have heard of it. Yeah. Uh, I, I love that everyone there put it on their list to the point where it <laughs> ended up at – what did it end up at? Uh, uh, 24. 24,
5: yeah. yeah. So we had Ellie Erickson, uh write that up. That's a film I've actually never seen myself. That's I have so to say. good. What? We're stopping this podcast right now.
6: <laughs> <Yeah>.
5: <laughs> but it was interesting. I mean, it was. It, that film was largely voted for by people in the UK, Ireland, and and Western Europe, and that that was that was about it. Very few votes. So are for that elsewhere.
1: Groundhog Day and Caddyshack the only Bill Murray movies. I think. Is so Is there no? Uh, there's no. Ghostbusters. No, Ghostbusters is there actually. Oh, okay. it, it's oh there is ninety-five. Like, no, yeah. No, uh, no meatballs. Okay. Yeah. Who,
2: who what on do the know? list? If you do you have no off the top of your head, like who recurred, like actors or directors or anything? Were, were there? Was it like one or two, or were there some that were on there multi, like many times? I mean, I don't.
5: I would. Chaplin appears sure. four times just in the top twenty-five. There you go. Uh, yeah. the, the Great Dictator, City Lights, Modern Times, The Gold Rush. Um, yeah, he's pretty much far and away the winner in that regard mm-hmm. um i mean it's interesting like yeah you've only got two billy wilder films and some like it hot in the apartment you've only got two buster keaton films in the general and sherlock jr it looks um, like there's three
0: Mill brooks he three Mill brooks
5: well. yeah um
0: adam mckay's on there twice
5: adam mckay yeah that's right with anchorman and uh what was what, what was his second film on there it was uh, uh, Step Brothers. Step Brothers. Step Brothers. Step Brothers. Yeah. See no Oh yeah yeah. I wonder I wonder why I forgot that.
2: But I think Step Brothers is an interesting one because that's yeah. a relatively recent movie but that sort of swiftly by you know a certain sect of critics enough to get it on the list are now sort of hailing that as this masterpiece and it that didn't take much time for that oh, movie. Yeah. So I wonder what the next Comedy that, that we sort of liked at the time, but now, yeah. you know, 10 years it, later, will be a it, classic.
5: I mean, that film only came out nine years ago. So yeah. I was in my senior year of college when that film came out. And I was working, actually, I did a little bit in, in publicity for that film. I was working for Allied Integrated Marketing in Chicago in my senior year. And I actually set up some events related to Step Brothers. But at the time, it was like the critics were really harsh on <laughs> yeah. that movie. I mean, that was not considered, no one would have said that that would be one of the 100 greatest comedies 10 years years later and here we are it now is so um yeah i mean seven critics voted for it uh mm-hmm. josh rothkopf was one of them from time so now, only
2: time seven here. critics voting was enough to get it on the list that's yeah, interesting they
5: were, they were pretty substantive votes if yeah I recall. I mean, oh they like came, high up yeah Yeah. yeah. they weren't yeah. just all at number 10
1: yeah. Did anyone else do days and confused that was my number two i, mean, I forgot i honestly nowhere just to forgot to yeah. 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 yeah yeah yeah
5: you know that's a funny thing like Days and Confused didn't really pop up all that much. I mean, The Graduate only received two votes. Wow. But that's the that's thing. That's crazy. I mean, because like, so right away, it's like, oh my gosh, I mean, The Graduate. I mean, that's such an iconic comedy, yeah. right? But. But is it that I mean, we it, no longer really think of it as just a comedy? That's right. true. Yeah,
1: it that's, gets very Sophie's Choice also with the 10. I, I found myself, cruel. I think I sent you two or three versions where I was like, Christian, actually, wait. Yeah.
2: yeah. yeah. Uh,
5: you, know.
1: you had
2: your all Birdman list and then yeah. you were like, yeah. no, I, no.
0: Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely sent in two lists when I, I realized that other people had put broadcast news on there and so I was like, I cannot let this stand. But then, as soon as I submitted it, I realized I forgot In the Loop, which I think is just one of the funniest yeah. movies I've ever seen and I just have wanted to kill myself ever since.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I and I, I, um, you know, uh, for me, my my surprise omission was was Clue. That I mean, I put that on, I, I kind of last minute, right before I emailed you, I put that on my list. was so like, how could I forget Clue? And then it looks like everyone else forgot it too because it didn't yeah. end up on the list. And I had a lot of lot of Twitter being like, I like your list, but but I like the, this list, but where is Clue? And maybe I don't know, maybe next time we do the poll.
1: Well, there's lots of uh, great, fun movies for people to watch yeah. in August right now yeah. with their various streaming services and everything. And uh, next week, we'll start really thinking about award season, but this is a perfect time of year to stop and talk about funny, goofy movies. I
2: agree. And now, I guess you probably can't give us a preview of what your, what your poll you're going to do next year. I mean, I'm thinking action you, you, movies. You or, know,
5: I haven't actually, we haven't had a chance to think about it yet, well, which, which is really, I mean, actually- what about horror? horror that's interesting but but horror
0: oh god uh, don't let me vote (laughs) i can i can handle that three horror movies
5: it's an an interesting thing i mean i almost worry that that would be a little too niche in a way because you exclude a lot of people right off the bat uh with horror i mean just you know people don't like to be scared a lot of times if
2: you did action movies (laughs) you could include six days and seven nights again
5: oh absolutely
1: and i would yeah yeah. how about depressing movies Best depressing, depressing movies.
2: movies. The, these lists are enough of a I'm psychological joking. test on critics. <laughs> yes. Like That's yes. the other thing that these lists function as, not just a reference for good comedies to watch. It's like, oh, like it, it, on Twitter and wherever, it's like critics just kind of tangling themselves into knots, defending their choices. It's, <laughs> oh wait, how, It's been really fun.
1: So to what extent do you rely on the narcissism of, of critics uh, <laughs> like ourselves here to tweet this thing out? How much is that part of the strategy?
5: Oh, it's, de- oh, it's definitely part of the strategy. <laughs> yeah. of, of course. course. Yeah. Of course. No. Because, no, it's, it's built in that, well, see, if we get all these critics involved, then... I, you know i know that you're going to be tweeting about it and
2: you have to have the separate page with each the individual list oh, that's course. key that's essential so people can screenshot and tweet and, essential Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well well thanks for giving us something really fun to do in august it's it's a great list and the write-ups are wonderful everyone should go read it um at bbc
5: my pleasure yeah, yeah absolutely um it's good it's really going to be all comedies this entire week on bbc.com slash culture and probably into next week too so thank great. you so much for having me on thanks, thanks christian, christian.
0: So Christian, people who want to catch some of these movies will have a chance to do that on Turner Classic Movies in a month. Can you tell us the details about that?
5: So September 22nd, a month to the day that the poll came out, September 22nd, a so Friday, Turner Classic Movies is going to air five of the movies that were in the top 100, including Some Like It Hot. And, um, and I'll be on with Ben Mankiewicz um, introducing them and then talking about them after each showing.
3: This year, I'm going to eat better and spend less time and money at the grocery store thanks to Butcher Box. Butcher box is the meat delivery subscription that gives me more time for what matters most. Each month they send a box of the highest quality meats for a better price in the grocery store, which gives me more time to spend cooking and sharing delicious meals with friends and family. 2 pounds of ground beef and 3 pounds of bone-in chicken thighs for free in the first box by going to butcherbox.com/cadence. That's butcherbox.com/cadence. Okay, Richard,
0: now we're going to share the interview that you did with Anne Dowd, who is Emmy nominated for her role on The Handmaid's Tale and kind of a genuinely terrifying role. Like the more I watch it, The Handmaid's Tale, the more it's hard for me to imagine having a conversation with her. But from all accounts, she's lovely. So tell me about this conversation you had.
2: Yeah, it's really funny because we talked about Handmaid's Tale, obviously, and um, The Leftovers, these two big shows that she had um, pretty sizable supporting roles on where on both in, in various capacities. She's kind of an evil, well, not evil, but villainous character. And yet in person, she's warm, she, she has this very soothing tone of voice. And I think that at one point in the interview toward the end, I, I kind of you know, la- uh, likened it to therapy. I mean, it was just like a really nice conversation about her technique and, and her approach to acting and her sort of broader thoughts on, 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 the, on the value of kind of doing these, these difficult works in, in difficult times. Well, I'm sitting across, I have the great pleasure of sitting across from Ann Dowd. Ann, thank Thank you for being here. Oh,
6: it's my pleasure. Thank Um, you.
2: We're really excited to have you. You know, we're doing this sort of like, you know, run up to the Emmys kind of conversations with some of the the. the the big stars of of, of the year, really, um, in this in this kind of awardsy conversation we have, and your name is really high on that list. I feel oh, like thank you had you. A, a really c- cool, interesting twenty seventeen. I would say,
6: yes, I would agree. <laughs> yeah, lucky me. How I has say. it been
2: for you with all this kind of you know? Well, first, obviously the shows, but then also now award stuff. Like, has it? Are you? Able to get some sense of perspective, or is it still still kind of crazy? Or?
6: This is now my goal to gain perspective, <laughs> right, right, because the wonderful thing about leading up to the nominations, you know, just to, saying to myself, you know, the great thing is you have the work and lucky you, and the roles are so good, you know, the writing and everything, but you find yourself and little anxiety creeping mm-hmm. in and everything, and my goal was to m- remain uh, balanced about it. You know, it's it's a, an honor my goodness, but to remember to keep your focus on the work. So I was sort of able to achieve that and since the announcements, I'm kind of in a cloud of sorts. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to putting my feet back on the ground. Work is the antidote, isn't it, to that? Sure. As so, soon as you start working, you think, okay, <laughs> down to business. Thank you very much.
2: So, I mean, do you enjoy going to these kind of awardsy things, like or like these shows and getting dressed up and all that? Is that fun or is that stressful? Or? Oh,
6: entirely stressful. Yeah, but then yeah. once you're there, it's like, oh, what was I worried about? Right. Um, we just did the TCA Awards. Of course, yeah. And the nice thing was, of course, we all knew who won what. So, I mean, I didn't know the others, but we knew we had won what we mm-hmm. were there for. So it's a p- really pleasant evening, no anxiety, not pretending to be calm, but just enjoying each other's company yeah. and seeing people. I got to see Carrie Coon, which was such a pleasure. Yeah, we just um, had her in the studio, oh, actually. You did? yeah. And,
2: and she, she was singing her praises. So yeah. She's
6: so lovely, and I'm just thrilled for her and... Even though we didn't shoot anything together. Do you believe that? I I mean, it's crazy. uh, But I say, the reason I say, do you believe that is because I feel very close to her and I I never spend, I don't think we exchanged a sentence. Um, But that's the effect of that show, I will say. I feel very close to all of them. Yeah. So The Leftovers
2: was this uh, wonderful, mysterious, strange thing that um, I feel like it kind of got its. It started getting its due praise, maybe a little bit later, like season two versus yes. the first season. Right. Um, what was your experience of that? Like, when did you notice that people were that were kind of really hooking into the show? Finally, um, was there a moment,
6: or did That's you? That's a great question yeah. because I I don't track that necessarily. Right. I could tell just from the experience of doing it that it was an extremely powerful, very unusual show.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it was, and it was was that unusualness when you were filming? I mean, did you feel it? Did you know yes. where you guys were at any given point? I mean,
6: or No, no. I mean, the, the interesting thing, I, I was thinking about the early days with Liv, Tyler, and Amy Brenneman. Mm-hmm. We're it's three or four in the morning and we're somewhere in New York. Who knew where? You stop asking after a while. Right. And we're at some, in some enclave uh, <laughs> shooting uh, and we don't really know what the Guilty Remnant is quite. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? We're all putting it together. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So those early days, but I can tell you that feeling of something very unusual is going on here and in terms of its connection to all of us and something about this notion of grief. And because when I first read it, I thought, I mean, departure, no one's departing nonsense. Mm. Uh, (laughs) You know, grow up and see if you can expand your way of looking at material. Try that. Right. (laughs) You know, and then, if you know, one or two episodes in, I was hooked like crazy um, and really affected by this notion of what do you do with that level of grief? What's the world now? Yeah. How are you going to proceed? I don't know how how many were watching, but then when you began to run into people who were so taken with it, and you realized it was going to cut very deep. Yeah, I didn't know how wide it would cut because someone said, you know, why do you think it didn't have the the large viewership? I don't really know the answer. And I actually, first of all, it's not a linear process. It's not you're not going to. It's not going to go in the way you think it's going to go. Right. Uh, and that's a wonderful thing, but you have to sit with it. You have to trust it. Yeah. Uh, and also it asks you to do something which I think is quite challenging, which is to sit with grief, to sit with loss, um, which is uncomfortable. A- and then if you do, it begins to work in your favor. Do you yeah. know what I mean?
2: Yeah, and I, I do. And and um, when Carrie was in here, I, I was talking to her about how – and we'll talk about this with Handmaids too, but like how timely and sort of either by accident or by design, just with, you know, people are feeling a lot of sort of existential despair right now. Yes, yes. And and on The Leftovers, you you kind of, your character represents one sort of extremely fatalistic view of how to deal with this mm-hmm, stuff. It's mm-hmm. kind of nihilistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't strike me as someone possessed <laughs> of that sort of mindset. Yes, but like, correct. So how do you, did, did you find it, was it oddly comforting to sort of play that dark extreme or like how did you what did you get out of it personally?
6: oh well I, what I got out of it personally was well uh, when I think of her process, patty's you mm-hmm. know her, her life what if you'll forgive the word journey is overused perhaps, but I don't know another word at the moment um, but, but what to me was so compelling about her story was that she came from nothing abuse, you're worthless, and I should be treated this way because I am essentially worthless. But then suddenly she has an awareness that something is about to happen. And she's insistent. And even her psychiatrist, honey, that's anxiety. Yeah. But then it happens. And I think for the first time in her life, she comes into her strength. Little did she know she's a born leader. Somewhere in her she knew. She's very smart. Uh, and she knows how to commit to the end. That's huge. And so that she was able to do so and to know that In her belief system, in the guilty remnant, you know, the goal is death. Let's get real here. Let's stop the nonsense. We're not going to the mall and we're not having a parade, God knows. We're going to get the job done. And we're going to do it with, we're going to let go of attachment. We're going to let go of distraction. We're going to keep it very, very simple. And we're going to also haunt you to get the drill. Haunt you till you start to stop. Uh, Till you can let go of the armor, you know. Uh, so what did it teach me? Well, over time, let us say. And I found that as I began to talk about her, I would usually end up weeping because she touched me in ways I don't even know. Yeah, And that's the nature of the material. Damon Lindelof, Tom Parada are writers. Where I didn't even know, you had to really commit to that material and let go of, oh God, where is this going? And then that second season when she had, of course, you know, I said to Damon, What's she doing there? Is she trying to help Kevin with the, I've repeated this before, but with the relationship, you know, is she trying to like give him advice or something? You know, she's saying, I told you not to tell her. Oh, and then you told her. Yeah. And it, Damon said, oh no, she doesn't believe in relationships. And I thought, oh my God, of course she doesn't. She's the same person. Yeah, He would come up with extraordinary answers that would just clarify. He said, she doesn't know what she's doing there. She thought she got the job done killed herself it's over and now she's sitting next to this irritating <laughs> man that she loves actually yeah. in a very deep way um and so then realizing oh she's trying to put it together yeah you know i don't know what am i i don't know what i'm doing here what do you want you know but then realizing that that, that burden that she had held on to for so long which was i had a chance to leave the abuse and i didn't do it i think she carried that deeper than the abuse itself i had a chance to walk away and Kevin in that extraordinary friendship of intimacy, which we both described as a love story. Yeah. And then he helped her to put that burden down, so she could really move on. And then season three, you know, the burdens have been dropped. I got one job to do. He's still going to drive me crazy. He's going to he's going to resist, resist, like ah. Uh, but I'm going to return the favor. I'm going to help you. We're going to blow up that world where you go to hide, honey. And then you're going to live an authentic life. How about that?
2: Yeah, there is. There's a. You're right. There's a full circle ness to that. Oh, the way that it ended. And I have goosebumps yeah. talking about it. Yeah.
6: To play that, imagine that it was a love story in its way.
2: Mm-hmm. I would imagine form a sort of loving bond with a co-star who is you're doing things that intensely with. You know, like and and there was an antagonism to your, the relationship between Patty. And I'm wondering now in Handmaid's Tale. On the other hand, when you have a lot of intense scenes with Elizabeth Moss, that. To me, feels like pure antagonism. I don't I don't detect any, I don't know, any sort of...
6: Love for her? Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, well, first of all, Lizzie's a dream. You've yeah. met, spoken with her, have you? I
2: met her at a party and she was she's, quite nice. Yeah, yeah. She's yeah. great and
6: she's yeah. funny, yeah. smart as a whip, the yeah. whole thing, and yeah. so good in the role. Yeah. So the personal relationship is terrific. I'm big, big, yeah. very fond of her. Um, I think someone like Alfred mm-hmm. it, it unnerves Lydia completely yeah. because I can scare her. Yeah. And I will, you know, get that prod out and we will do some electrical work. <laughs> uh, and so I can, I can force her to pay attention and hear me and do what I said to do, but I can't read her. Yeah. She's got that thing that her friend has, that Moira girl. Uh, and those are the ones that are unnerving to Lydia because, hey, wait a minute here. Um, I know some, I, I, they, they just, I can't, they're not transparent yeah and uh, and most of the girls i can get a sense of or at least i thought and then of course the 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 last episode i think it threw lydia profoundly i wonder what will happen there what the recovery will be if there will be a recovery i have no idea yeah
2: now that show um i've watched it i've i it's hard to say i've enjoyed it i've appreciated it you know It's, it's well made but it's really hard to watch yeah is it as hard to make no no
6: no because um I'll tell you, when we were making it, keep in mind, as his candidacy, candidacy was... He who shall remain <laughs> That's it, I could barely... <laughs> uh, you know, suddenly, this, to me, it was a joke that he would even be... I kept saying, it's not going to happen, never, no. never. The reason it's not hard to shoot it is that it is a form of activism in a way. It is a place to put your focus, your anger, your despair, focus it into something that is going to make this... A visual that people can absorb yeah. yeah you know and i and i wanted to ask you,
2: you know, about lydia and and patty to an extent i feel like i don't want to frame your career in this way necessarily but like compliance was like a big sort of moment in your career right yes it yeah. was yeah for sure and and you weren't a villain in that you were a victim as, as right. much as um dreamy right, walker's right, right. character was a victim but since then, in these kind of high-profile TV roles, you've had—they've got you playing some some dark people, let's yeah. say. Yeah. But you—you you, sitting in front of you, I mean, you exude this warmth, the liveliness. Like, why do you think that is, or 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 is it? Is there any reason for it, or is it just coincidence?
6: Well, I, I, that's such a good question. I'd love to know the answer to that, um, and I wish I had an intelligent one for you. I have no idea. I can tell you, however, that I'm very comfortable in them. Yeah. Um, I've said. You know, if, if you were to ask me what kind of—I've always, always been drawn to the outsider, to the one that never got the guy, that never fit in, couldn't do it. Um, I imagine many actors are drawn there. It's just a beautiful place. Uh, I remember working on a play called um, The Will Gatherer. Do you know it, Master Simone? Oh, I don't know. It's beautiful. It's a two-person play. Oh, my God. And by all counts, she should be dead in a, in a gutter. However, mm. she is not right. And the at first, when I was working, I was like, oh, "She's kind of I don't know. I'm not interested in her." And then I realized, "Oh, Anne, the reason you're not interested is you're playing her as a victim. She is a survivor, my dear. She is someone that should should inspire you." And once I saw that and realized, "Okay," then I was really drawn to that kind of an individual. Yeah, who against considerable odds lives their life, you
2: know. I would imagine that there's sort of a, a satisfying aspect to finding that extra dimension. Uh, who'd, so instead of it just being a straight villain or you know, like, oh, yeah. you know, a single motivation, yeah, yeah. to like make it whole is is part of the fun, I would guess. And and if you're just playing a solid down the middle hero, you know, yeah. who is decent and righteous, like and, uh, that's not yeah. as fun.
6: No, yeah. uh, that's the thing. You hate to say hey, Lydia's fun because you think, it's right, of right. But I got to tell you, it's great. Yeah.
2: I'm curious from a sort of more macro like career planning, like do you have strategies? Do you have goals in mind? Or are you just kind of going from project to project as they come? The latter. Yeah.
6: The goal would be just an emotional one, for lack of a better word. It just to drop the armor. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's the growth I hope to take as an actor. Leave it all out there and and to drop the fear, you know the need to control, that kind of thing. These are all goals that one has, I think, in all of our lives, right? Yeah. Where you want to just uh trust trust the work, trust that what you've done is um in preparation is going to be enough and let's let it go. That's the other huge thing from leftovers. Sitting with grief and letting go.
2: Yeah. Um, well, Anne, this was such a pleasure. Oh to talk my gosh! To you. Thank you for You're coming. You're so in. lovely. And, Thank you. And congrats on all your success. Thank you. And, Thank and you.
6: Continued success. Thank you. And the same to you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. Yeah.
0: And now we'd like to share an interview that VF.com's Hollywood correspondent Rebecca Keegan did with Lena Waithe, who is not only a star of the Netflix series Master of None, she plays Denise, who is the friend of Aziz Ansari's main character, but she's also a writer on the show, and she is Emmy-nominated for co-writing the episode Thanksgiving, which most people remember as the one with Angela Bassett, and it's the one that's about her character Denise kind of growing up and coming out and coming into her own over a series of Thanksgivings. It's a really outstanding episode of the season, and Rebecca talked to Lena about this entire process of having her first Emmy nomination. So let's listen to that conversation.
7: Congratulations on your Emmy nomination for Master of None. The episode that you wrote with Aziz Ansari features a character you play in the show named Denise, who's coming out to her mother, played by Angela Bassett. Uh Can you tell me a little bit about how you guys decided to structure the episode?
4: Well, that actually was born out of the writer's room. Uh, Aziz's younger brother, Anise, who we all love, uh, came up with that idea about framing it with that holiday. Um, and it was specific because obviously him and Aziz did not grow up celebrating Thanksgiving. But they thought it would be sort of a cool way to tie in the sort of like from the family element in terms of what's the thing that forces family to come together every year and especially for black people. I mean, it's like such a thing. I mean, being in the kitchen, one is, is such a tradition anyway, but that particular holiday is very special. I think in the African-American community and the fact that it would kind of create an origin story as to why Dev is always around um, for Thanksgiving. So, When they pitched that to me, I thought, "Oh, that's really great!" And so it's a way to track time, but also there's a consistency to it, Mm -hmm. and it just makes sense when there's also so much pressure that kind of circles around Thanksgiving in terms of like the cooking and the family. And also it's a time where people bring people home. And so it just really it struck me. And I thought, oh, I can have so much fun with that. So it really kind of was born. It came from, you know, from Anise, which was like a phenomenal idea. And uh, and, we, and then me and he just ran with it.
7: One of the things I like about it is that when you hear that something's a coming out episode, I think you think it, the whole episode is going to build to that moment. Uh-huh. But your character actually comes out to her mother, sort of in the middle of it. And then right. you see how the family evolves. Right. Talk to me about that scene that you shot in the diner opposite Angela
4: Bassett. First of all, Angela Bassett. I mean, not, not a What's bad What's it like to come to work that day? <laughs> Nerve-wracking. Um, that's what I loved about it. I love the fact that it wasn't the build-up to that moment. Because the truth is, and I told this to Aziz and Alan, I think when we were, early, when we were having early conversations about it, was that it, what was most interesting is what happened post coming out. And mm-hmm. I think they really connected to that. And as I was telling them my story, they really found a lot of fun and humor in what it was like when the gayness actually was being pushed into my family's face versus just oh okay Lena's gay got it versus okay well now this is our partner what do we do now so that really was fun to kind of say oh this is just where the journey begins this is this is just a quick little blip in a, in a gay person's life is the coming out as scary as it is but the truth is life begins after that so um, that's really kind of how we structured it we were, we were like the fun really happens once she brings the first girlfriend home and then another girl then it brings the other girl back and so but filming that coming out scene I Still felt the pressure of making sure we got it right. Was that the the mother didn't come off like a villain? That I wasn't the hero of my own story, and that you know, and that it was. It's weird because for some people they they're so surprised that Angela's character is so shocked at what her daughter is saying. But the truth is that's what happened in my own experience, and that's what I was very frustrated by. I mean, all those things that were said in that diner scene were said in a diner in Los Angeles um, when I actually came out to my mother because a part of me was very frustrated that I had to come out because I'm so obviously gay or I present or I think that's what I feel. But the truth is for particularly middle-class black people, they don't have a lot of experience with gay people. So they don't know what that means to be, oh, obviously this person's gay. So there is that surprise element in that diner scene on one side of it, the frustration on the other side of that I have to come out. And so, and I really wanted that to come across and also the, the humanity in that, catherine played by angela it's not it's less about oh you're going to hell i'm gonna throw the bible at you but it was i want to be more about i don't want life to be difficult for you so that's why even though angela's a phenomenal partner i was just very nervous about making sure we got that right that's really where i think the nerves are coming from because there were so many elements that were at play in that scene Um, for a lot of different reasons and I just want to make sure the tone of it kind of hit the way I was hoping to and I feel like we did because a lot of people really care about the mom and they understand where the mom was coming from they obviously are already they're sort of already on board with Denise just because they know that character they like her they've come to know her so I think my mission obviously I was portraying a version of my mother one so there's that level of pressure but I think my mission was to make sure that parents who have been come out to don't all come off like these like sort of evil people who don't understand things. It was just more about they just are being confronted with something that they've never experienced before. So that's a long way to answer to say, yes, I was nervous about that scene. Uh, But I'm also very happy that it was in the middle because I think that's where the fun begins is after the coming out.
7: Yeah. And that's a really, to your point about the mother character, is a very poignant line when she says something like, I just don't want life to be hard for Mm -hmm. you. And you sort of get that her reaction, the complexity of her reaction. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you shown this episode to your family?
4: Well, I they live in Chicago, so Mm -hmm. I didn't get a chance to like you know press the button and do it for them. But they all did see it on their own time, and uh, and I heard from you know my sister and my mom, and they really like liked it. But it's funny because some people asked if I talked to my mom before I wrote the episode, and I purposely did not want to do that because I think everybody's memory is different people always remember like you can remember the same conversation very differently and i didn't want my mom to say oh well, i was great about it when you first came out. <laughs> or, this was remember like i didn't do this thing so i didn't want any of that to cloud my memory i really wanted to just come at it fresh and uh i don't really didn't talk to anybody about it i mean i was in london and aziz came out so we could write it together so I really wanted to be a little isolated because I wanted my memory to be as clean as possible. But after the fact, she was like, "Is that how it happened? Is that how it went down? Or did I say that?" And I'm like, "Yeah, you did. You did say that." And so, but she was able to look at it and kind of go, "Okay, well, that's fun." But she was also just more excited the fact that Angela Bassett was playing her. So she was like, "I don't care what you had to say. Like, I was just happy that Angela Bassett played me." So I
7: mean, that seems like a, a real <laughs> gift to any mom. <laughs> true.
4: That true, casting. True. True. Uh,
7: did you? Were you involved in the casting of Young Denise? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: What yeah, was that like? It was phenomenal. I actually was, I had a sort of a, a, a blessing of riches because there were so many amazing little black girls in New York that, you know, just had this sort of sass and just kind of reminded me of myself. Poor, you know, Aziz, like he, there's only so many like Indian little boys that come from those different angles that kind of make, cause he has a very unique way of, he has a very unique cadence mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. So he had, it took him longer to prove like his young, Boys versus me, because I was like, she's great. Those two could both play it. Like we, it was an embarrassment of riches. And me and Melina, like, really enjoyed, um, hanging out with those little girls, but they were all phenomenal. And, um, and we got a lot of tapes in and, and, uh, and I think there was a, Cause I was a rambunctious like little kid and I had a big personality and, and obviously Denise has a very specific personality. So it was definitely a tall order, but I I just, I, if I could cast all those girls, I, I would. They were all phenomenal and really adorable. But the three girls we wound up with, I was just very, very, very happy with. They were so great, so great.
7: When you came to LA, you knew you wanted to be a writer from childhood, yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was the first thing you did for a living when you got here?
4: Well, here's what how, how I'm dating myself a little bit. I was obsessed with movies and TV and all that kind of stuff. So even the little odd jobs I had in Chicago always would be um, related to that. So I worked at a movie theater. I worked at the, in the media department at Best Buy. And I worked at Blockbuster so i knew i wanted to come to la and i was like well i need a job and i was like i want to transfer my blockbuster job to los angeles so that's what i did so my first job out here was blockbuster which obviously no longer exists which How one is it it was on um ventura the one right by oh crap it was there's this um restaurant which i can remember but it was like it's like a mattress store now <laughs>
0: So yeah, sad. I
4: know it's so sad. It's funny to me, and I'm a part of the. I'm like I'm, I'm on a Netflix show. and it's right. like you know, it's video killed the radio star, but um, but yeah, I was working at Blockbuster, and uh, and then I started. I got into reality television and it was like, you know, uh transcribing videos for the real world where you like watch all the f- raw footage and you like kind of talk about what's going on so the editors know what to pull and mm-hmm. what all that kind of stuff. So that's usually what I think most people do. You work in reality because there's so it's a plethora of that versus like you want to get into scripted but it's hard to get into that world so I was you know just working from like 6 p.m. to 3 a.m. just just transcribing footage of the real world Australia um, which really was paying the bills like that like actually helped me pay my rent for once so I could like stop weaning off my mother um, and then eventually I got an assistant gig at Girlfriends mm-hmm. uh, and their last season because the strike happened so I was like, working there and it was like an amazing experience and then the strike happened then I went and worked at E and I worked on did the like, PA stuff for like their red carpet events, which is like hilarious. I literally like worked like Emmy red carpet, Oscar red carpet, SAG red carpet. So to be an Emmy nominee, I and mean, we go to this. Yeah, like, what so is the
7: so was the last what was the last time you were on the Emmys red carpet when you were working as a PA on it, or had you yeah, been- and I
4: wasn't even that close. It was because like E has um a lot of they you know they cover the red carpet from many different areas, so I was like working like. Oh, there's like a because there's on the red carpet and then there's like places around the red carpet so I wasn't even like on the red carpet I was like at one of the places where they kind of caught people like coming in out of the car right. like you know. So, it was like, so I was like you know passing the questions for that <laughs> it was like the, before they even got to Ryan Right. Um, but yeah but that was like and I'm still friendly with that group of people that we all were like the PAs and to come up with questions and like silly games and like ideas like okay what's a fun thing and trivia so I was always in it I was always like trying to get there and and then um, and eventually I got staffed on like the Nickelodeon show. That mm-hmm. was like the first gig. And um, where, the, where the lead was literally Masterpiece Daughter. Her name was Symphonique Miller. <laughs> the show was called How to Rock and was based on a book called How to Rock um, Glasses and Braces. <laughs> and I uh, did that. And then I went and produced Dear White People um, because my friend obviously justin had that script and i was in a writer's group with him and i was like i want to help you do this but i gotta i gotta get staffed first i'm always about goals i'm like i gotta get staffed first and then i'll do that i got staffed i was sort of disillusioned by it all and i was like well this isn't as exciting as i thought it would be he had this really cool script and i was like i want to help you produce it he was like okay and um and we just sort of you know we did our uh, fictitious trailer for it mm-hmm. um That got a lot of attention. I mean, we literally dropped it on Wednesday, and he was on CNN on Friday, and uh, and then we went and made the movie, and then it got into Sundance, and that sort of changed all of our lives. and And then I wrote my first, took my first swing at writing a drama, which ended up being The Shy, which is now which Showtime bought. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, but before Showtime like bought it, or while they were buying it, I. Allison Jones called me to go to Aziz Ansari's house and um, was like, "She's I mean, the casting director." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. she was like, "You should." And she she had met me. She heard of me, and she was like, "I think you should be. You should just on camera stuff." And I was like, "Really?" I was like, "I don't know. I'm kind of comfortable doing the writing thing." She's like, "Yeah, but let me bring you up for some stuff here and there." And she did, and I got a small part on the comeback in season two, which I love the first season, and then and then yeah, one day I got a call saying, "Oh, when can you go to Aziz Ansari's house?" And I was like, "For what? Or what's mm-hmm. going on?" But it was the perfect thing because I went and sat with him and Allen. I think because of my history as a, you know, as a writer, it felt almost like a staff meeting, even though it wasn't, I knew it was casting because it was Allison, but I was just so comfortable in my own skin at that point. And I talked, I had just like met my girlfriend and I was so in love with her and I was talking to them about that. And just like me being from Chicago and all these things. And they were like, okay. And they were like, all right, thank you. And then I got a call and says, he wants you to read with him. And I went and I read just a scene with him. And we just, it was just immediate. It was just like a, we just had a natural chemistry. Mm-hmm. And um, I came back in and then I tested it, And then he offered me to come in New York to film the show. And that is sort of like the sort of like, and then at the same time, Showtime's like, we really like this drama you did. So we want to do that. Um, and it's just sort of been a lovely whirlwind ever since. Yeah. Yeah.
7: Um- Certainly, there's a lot happening. When you yeah. when you were nominated for the Emmy, you were the first Black woman to be nominated for an Emmy for writing a comedy. Right.
4: Mm-hmm. And be- Sykes has been nominated before, but it's for variety. For, for variety. Yeah,
7: yeah, yeah. Got it. Um, it's on one hand it can be an honor to be a first it can also be lonely to be a first I mean what does it feel like from where you sit
4: um I feel like I feel honored to be to sort of break down a door which I wasn't even aware I was breaking down Mm because I did not know that and I normally know that kind of trivia I don't know why I, I don't know I didn't know that I did I just wasn't aware I guess maybe I might have thought oh maybe Wanda was nominated in that category but obviously she wasn't so uh, it's humbling, you know, and I think, um, I think for me, it just reminds me of my responsibility and everyone's responsibility in the industry to make sure that women of color, particularly have a seat at the table in these writer's rooms and actually have a voice and are given opportunities to really, to shine. Cause I do believe when given the opportunity to tell our story or to sort of be in the spotlight, ally, in which Aziz and Alan sort of gave me an opportunity to do, I think you, people would be surprised at the kind of stories we tell and about the way we go about it and the way it actually hits audiences. Because I know, given this character a special episode of something, I think Alan and wanted to do anyway. Uh, my schedule was a little tight, season two, because I was filming a, a feature in London. But they knew they wanted to do something with the character. and um, And I think it was that opportunity that they gave me to say hey we're going to pass you the ball and like kind of let you run with it and I think I really didn't take it lightly I was like okay cool let's tell you know and we, we found out we wanted to tell that story which was a very big story to tell but I think for me it was just a, a wonderful opportunity to, to have my voice not be put through a filter which often happens with writers, writers of color they're, they're, they'll say okay here's the script and then you write and then we'll bring someone else in, usually a white guy to do a to do a rewrite on it and make it more palpable for audiences. Mm -hmm. But I think the fact that, obviously, Aziz and Allen didn't do that, and that's also not Netflix's um, culture, Mm -hmm. uh, I got a chance to really see what would happen when audiences get to really react to my voice. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's most flattering about it. Because if it was like if Aziz did a big rewrite on it or if they noted it to death, it would feel different. Because I would go, oh, well, it's not really my accomplishment. But because what we wrote in that hotel room in London, like, is literally on the screen. I think that's why I think myself and Aziz and Alan and the whole crew are so proud because we really took a chance on sort of doing the right thing, which is to kind of let me and this character really live in a space of freedom and uh, and specificity. And I think that's what is so special about the nomination, but also it tells me that the more opportunities we get, the more that will happen. So I think it's about what can we do to make sure women of color have a voice and have a seat at the table in a real way.
7: Well, thank you, Lena. I look forward to seeing you on the red carpet, not working as a PA, <laughs> not
4: as a PA, <laughs> but walking for your own
7: nomination. Thank you so thank much. Thank
4: you so much. Thank you.
0: So that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thanks, as always, for listening. And you can find us and rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, where we always appreciate the help in finding new listeners. You can find most of us at VanityFair.com. And you can find our guest, Christian Blavelt at BBC.com culture. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men, And on our own, I am at Katie Rich, Mike.
1: Mike underscore Hogan.
0: And Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. I wrote this. And Christian, where are you on Twitter?
5: I'm at CT Blavelt.
0: And thank you again, Christian, for joining us. My pleasure. This episode was edited and produced by Jordan Bell, and thanks to Andy Bowers at Panoply.
2: And this week's award for the most out there best picture prediction of the year so far goes to our guest, Christian Blavel.
5: Six days, seven nights.